Hello, fam. This is Ro, and you're listening to Sick of Being Sick. Please follow, like, subscribe, or do whatever it is that your app does to listen to our upcoming episodes. Hello, thank you for tuning in to episode seven, where we talk to Lee about her cancer journey. She's a two-time cancer survivor. Her first cancer was a breast cancer, and her second cancer was a skin cancer. Sadly, she still has cancer very much in her life uh, with her husband. With that, we are going to talk about her um, approach to processing cancer or not processing cancer <laughs> while she was in it. Uh, she is a women powerhouse in the workspace. She has her own company and she really shares with us and gets granular with how she almost pretty much avoided um, the fact that she had cancer while she was going through it and how she's getting more vulnerable with herself and starting to process it now. Being in this podcast is part of her sort of healing process. So I ask everybody to please welcome her with uh, open arms. And without further ado, super excited to chat with Lee. Hello, Lee. Thank you so much for joining us at Sick of Being Sick this week. Super excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Could you please kick it off with telling us how you were diagnosed and what were your diagnoses as well as your treatments for both times? So I was diagnosed in late July 2017 with stage two breast cancer. And I, I was HER2 positive, which is a... One thing I discovered is there's lots of different kinds of breast cancers. I didn't realize that. And so because it was HER2 positive, I had a very specific sort of regimen of treatment that had been tested and tried. So it wasn't like, here are your options. This is what we recommend. It's that you're doing this. Uh, so I did six rounds of chemo. And I, I don't remember the exact drugs uh, because... Uh, I was just trying to get through it, but apparently it was like two of the worst kinds of chemotherapy that you can have. And then, but fortunately, um, I didn't have to do any radiation, but I did have a uh, mastectomy and then reconstruction in 2018. And then in February, 2020, during routine skin check, which I encourage everyone to do, a stage zero melanoma was found on my leg that was excised. And fortunately, because it was stage zero, nothing else had to be done. I didn't have to do anything except whenever I am outside now, I have to wear sunscreen. So I can't allow any UV rays. I have to limit as much as, as possible any sort of UV rays. So I have like UV protective workout clothes now and things like that. Wow. So you have to take a lot of <laughs> uh, life changes for, for your skin since that one. Yeah. And how did you feel when you first received the news? I guess, you know, both times I'm sure it was very different. The first time hearing news of cancer news in your life. And then the second time kind of having a different diagnosis, yeah. but also receiving the news again. Well, something else I should mention, which I didn't mention before, is that in the skin cancer was February, 2021. So it was fairly recently, but in March or the spring of 2020, my husband was diagnosed with stage four 
or with metastatic uh, cancer mm -hmm. of the esophagus. So I kind of feel like I'm just living in cancer. Um, but when, when I was diagnosed originally in 2017, it was, yeah, it was just a shock. I have a memory of, I was waiting, I was waiting on the results of the biopsy, you know, to find out whether or not I had cancer. And I remember just walking, I live in the Washington DC area and I was working in DC and I, I walked to get some ice cream and I was kind of just wandering around just kind of. So, and I think when, when I got the diagnosis, my husband was with me, it was a shock obviously. And you don't know, like you just don't know, and you don't want to consult Dr. Google because then, you know, and so there were sort of two phases to knowing. So the first phase is you have cancer, which is terrifying to hear those words. And then you find, well, what kind of cancer do you have? So they run more tests, um, which was because the whole thing's a learning experience because no one wants to think about cancer, learn about cancer at all until you kind of have to. And so we were in the doctor's office getting the results back. And it was kind of funny because I remember just being like totally in shock. The <laughs> doctor comes back and it's like, I'm so excited. This is great news. You have heard <laughs> like, How can you be excited about cancer news? <laughs> I'm kind of like, okay. And she's like, no, this is great because we know exactly how to treat this kind of cancer. Oh, that's amazing then. So because it's that, because it was her too, that there was a, as I mentioned before, this very specific mm -hmm. approach to treatment that had been tested as successful and life expectancy was great and outcomes were good and all these things. So the certainty there was very comforting to me mm -hmm. that I didn't have to make any decisions really. It was just, I was basically told this is what we're going to do. Yeah. And I, it didn't even occur to me to get a second opinion or see what other options there were because it was, I had two female doctors, a, a female oncologist and a female breast surgeon. And, mm -hmm. and it was just, we're off to the races now. That's amazing. If I compare that to my experience, actually, it feels like mm -hmm. a little bit the opposite <laughs> because for me, yeah. you know, like with brain cancer, everybody knows that there's no cure. We're just all kind of like, you know, getting treated until we hope that science will make some sort of advancements. I'm jealous of, of your experience in that regard. Uh, well, and I think too, because you are such in shock, it really, you don't think, right? You're just kind of going through the motions and like, you've got a doctor that tells you to do something. So you're like, oh, okay. And in it, I realize how important it is to have an advocate, you know, whether it's a husband or a friend or a partner or a parent or whatever, to be there who may be a little more clear thinking to help you process and think about options and mm -hmm. kind of review with you what just happened. Because I, looking back, I kind of think maybe I should have talked to someone. Maybe I should have paid more attention yeah. to like the actual chemotherapy drugs, because I realized when I talked to other women with breast cancer, they were like, oh yeah, this, this, and this. And I was getting, and I was like, I just wanted to forget it. I didn't want to be a cancer person. So I didn't, and I had no interest in knowing anything because yeah. it made it more real. Yeah. And, 100%. and I think it's good to have someone with you who can help you process that. And I don't, I didn't realize that until later. 
Yeah, I think on that end, like on the having an advocate to help you process, I have like a dynamic in my family where my dad and my sister have to come to like That's great. all the oncology visits or any doctor mm-hmm. visit because for me, I literally, I sit in the chair and I just hear blurb. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, and I'm like, tell me later what they said. Like I pretend that I think I know what I'm going on, what's going on, but then I like digest it after and then write down my questions after. And I also think, you know, having two people there, everybody hears different things. So like, you know, you can kind of paint the full picture after the fact. And I actually think that like, probably not looking too much into the treatment that you had is probably a positive because you go so crazy the moment that you start looking and it it can be so toxic. It's like how much information is too much information at that point. But um, how did you, uh, speaking of this, how did you emotionally process this news and adapt your lifestyle to it? So the short answer is I did not. In my family, we were taught that emotions were bad and that you don't share emotions, that to share emotions with other people is to burden them, that emotions are a burden. And so we keep them to ourselves. So I was terrified to tell people because I didn't want to burden them. I didn't want to evoke pity from them. I didn't, I felt like then I would have to, because what happens when you tell people you have cancer, they get very uncomfortable. And then because I felt like it was my responsibility to make them feel better, which was then a burden on me when I'm already overwhelmed with dealing with cancer, I have my own business. So I was nervous about telling clients because I didn't want them to think that I wasn't capable and couldn't kind of deliver. Um, so I, I told my, my husband obviously knew I told my children, I told maybe five close friends and one client who I'd worked with for over 10 years. So, and And it was a client in a space where uh, they were a biotech member association. And one of their members had actually created the treatment that saved my life. So there was a personal connection there. But otherwise, I told very few people. I did not mention it on social media. I was very quiet and private about it. And as I like to say, I just white knuckled my way through. It was just kind of like, suck it up. Let's just get through this. And didn't process emotionally at all. It wasn't until one of my best friends died of lung cancer Mm -hmm. about a year after my surgery that I said to myself, I mean, I'm getting choked up just thinking about Mm -hmm. her passing, is that I never dealt with my own cancer. Mm -hmm. I need to deal with this because if I don't, something really bad could happen. And so I went back to therapy and still in therapy, dealing, like dealing with talking about my emotions, dealing with my feelings. When I was going through it and not telling people what one thing I really was fascinated by was that 
people, you know how you've heard the science around how your brain fills in the blanks to mm -hmm. make a picture make sense to you. Mm -hmm. And I realized that's what people did with me. They filled in the blanks to make sense of changes in the way I look. I lost all my hair. Mm -hmm. This came back curly after. And so when I lost my hair, I didn't want to wear a wig because I thought it would look fake. So I chose to wear like head wraps and mm -hmm. turbans because it was something I had always wanted to do anyway. And I thought, well, now's a great time because I won't have hair. And so when I started doing that, no, only one person out of the, I don't know, hundreds of people I interacted with asked me if I had cancer. Everyone else thought, oh, well, Lee, you're so fashionable. Of course you would wear a turban. Yeah. That how it didn't did you even... feel about that question? Like, how did you feel when people asked? Would you open up or? Well, so this... The, the one person who asked me is mm -hmm. a very close friend of mine from college. Okay. And she immediately, she, like the first image of the turban she saw, she texted me and she's like, do not tell me you have cancer. And because I'm close to her and I, I opened up to her, I felt totally mm -hmm. comfortable with her. And I appreciated that she cared about me. Yeah. And that, and I don't, it's not that I don't think other people didn't care about me, but it was just like, wow. Mm -hmm. People, you know, we all think, Like people are paying attention to us or scrutinizing us. Like nobody cares. <laughs> nobody you just cares. Realize, like, they are so caught up in themselves that they, any chance they can have to make sense of you, mm -hmm. they just like, it doesn't phase them. I realized it was super easy for me to be private unless like for people, I think you had history of cancer or had an experience with cancer either themselves or their family members, mm -hmm. they instantly knew like you can't fool them. <laughs> and they would find a, a very respectful way to approach me and ask me. Right. But otherwise, like people just don't care. It was really, it was really fascinating. So it was easy for me not to deal mm -hmm. with my emotions and just kind of white knuckle it and just get through it. Yeah. So you were doing it to yourself, but society was also helping you do it to yourself. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. It's exactly. so interesting because we have such different approaches but I can drive so many parallels like the feeling you know you were super quiet about it I'm like out here doing a podcast talking about it <laughs> into detail um and also you know on TikTok and things like that but the point one for example the feeling of burden I've I feel like a burden every single day to my family I think that that's just part of like something that comes with this diagnosis for every single person. The feeling of burden to family, friends, not wanting to be the bad news of the day. Not. And then another point that you were saying around, you know, not have, not wanting to tell people. I really have come to realize that it's not our job to do that. It, you, you know, it's like if as exactly as you were saying with your friend, if somebody sees and they're so uncomfortable, if they're close to you, they'll reach out and they'll say something. But it's not our job to promote that we have what we have. I've promoted it because I don't think there's enough awareness around brain cancer specifically, and mm -hmm. uh, at least within the young adult community, and it comes up too much. And there's just not enough conversation around it. And it feels quite lonely. But mm. it's really not our job as the sick person to be communicating our community yeah. what we're going through. They have to be well, the supporters, I think. And I think too, you raise a good point about like brain cancer and feeling alone and not there being a lot of public conversation around it. Mm -hmm. Breast cancer is like Huge. there's pink washing. Yeah. There's just like all this crap and like it takes over people's identity. That's a personal choice. It's not a choice that I make. I kind of hate that. Like 
I don't want to be part of that club. Yeah. I just didn't, yeah. you know, like I didn't want cancer to define my life. And I just felt like there were, I did join a group for people with breast cancer and breast cancer survivors. And I just never felt comfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it was that like, I just don't want this to be all of who I am. Yeah. Like I, I want it to be something I experienced, but not part of my identity. I mean, I'm still kind of grappling with it. And I think part of the reason I was excited to meet you and join your podcast was because I do want to, I consider this part of my therapy, mm -hmm. part of, you know, being comfortable talking with it. Because I, I think it, how you deal with it is a personal choice, but regardless of whether you're public or private with it, you definitely need to deal with your emotions because this isn't a very emotional experience and it doesn't serve you to just push your feelings down. In the last episode that aired yesterday, I talked about how like doctors don't tell us, you know, the oncologist should come with a pamphlet of, you know, the emotional side of this <laughs> and how little work medically there is done to actually support the mental health of this. I have mm -hmm. an oncology therapist, uh, which I'm super fortunate for wow. that works hand in hand with my oncologist. But that's amazing. yeah. And like, if I have worries about, you know, questions about something she speaks to my oncologist to make sure that she's going to be aware that I'm going to come up with these questions so she's prepared to mm -hmm. deliver them in a way that is not too aggressive or you know that I can take right. it I have chemo brain and I forgot what I was going to say oh the identity side of this yes oh right yeah so I also really relate to the identity component of this I actually before starting the podcast I had a really emotional, open chat with my dad. And I was like, I've always wanted to start a podcast. I feel like the time is now and this topic makes sense. I don't want this cancer to become me. I still mm -hmm. need to be raw. I still need to, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. and I had so much fear of that. But in part, like, it's such a huge life event that it is going to shift exactly. who we are to a certain extent. And you have to process yeah. it to, you know, they say, you're going to be better on the other end. You're going to be a better person. And as cliche as that sounds, like there is so many learnings emotionally that I've been having throughout this that I will definitely carry through life, but still also yeah, terrified yeah. that it's, it's my identity, <laughs> you know? Well, and I think too, I mean, especially with my husband's cancer, it's kind of like, fuck it. You get one life. Mm -hmm. Like this is it. You can't go back and do it again or have a retake. Like this is it. And you don't know how long you have. Things change in an instant. And you can't wait for the right time or until you have enough money or until there's some circumstances in place because it will never happen. And I think that's part of having cancer having a spouse with cancer, having friends that have died of cancer is that you deserve to be happy, mm -hmm. right? You can't wait. It, happiness is not going to come once all the stars align. That's never going to happen. I had this sort of breakdown with my husband because he's so sick. He can't work mm -hmm. anymore. You know, it's a, it's a scary time yeah. to be honest. I was just like, once he gets better, then I can be happy. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, I need to be happy now because there's no, I don't know if I'm going to have tomorrow. And so I think that's one thing with cancer too, is that you just, it completely kind of reframes your life and you just realize that some things just aren't that important. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, 
that to me, as someone who's like a workaholic and has trouble setting boundaries and is always putting other people's priorities out of my own, that I was like, no, done, not happening anymore. That I can actually control my happiness and be happy when I want to was, is a really powerful realization. Absolutely. I don't know. Are you familiar with Nightbird? No. She is also a young adult. Um, she's actually quite advanced in her cancer right now, but she went to the X Factor. She, she did a, an audition because it was her, you know, lifelong dream to be a musician. And she has this quote. She said, you can't wait for everything to be okay to start being happy. And when I heard that, I was like, it's so accurate. And I think that's also a mindset that I'm trying to apply now. It's like, you know, this year for me, I was supposed to do all these things. I left my job because I wanted to like move to London and start a new job and, you know, whatever. And I was like, okay, I have this cancer thing going on, but I'm going to book, you know, I have breaks. I'm booking trips every single, you know, break that I have to go see all my friends across Europe. Like I'm, I still need to be a normal person, you know, um, and not let this cancer topic take over my life. There's never perfect timing for nothing. <laughs> the timing is now. Why? Do you think you're, it's a good time to speak about it now? I know it's part of like the therapeutic component of it for you, but why now? Part of it is finding, so because I was so private about it, it was, I just kind of shut down because mm-hmm. I thought that I had a binary choice mm-hmm. of either being very public or being, or, or, or not saying anything at all. Mm-hmm. And so I think part of what I'm trying to do is like for myself figure out what feels comfortable in terms of talking about. And so when we met and sort of you invited me on the podcast, I thought, huh, that's really scary to me (laughs) to be so public, but that it feels safe. I felt connected Mm -hmm. to you and I felt like it's, it's going to be scary. It may be a little uncomfortable, but it's a good first step that I feel comfortable in doing as, as a kind of experiment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what is it like to talk about my cancer with someone else who has cancer. So it's a safe space. But also setting, as you're saying, like your own boundaries. So as I was going through cancer very privately, I couldn't help but notice other people who are going through cancer very publicly. And so it was really interesting to me to see whatever social platform they chose, just being very open and honest about what they were going through with photographs. And, you know, obviously you've done the same thing <laughs> and thinking, like my kind of gut emotion was like, no, 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 no. I'm not, can't do that. Can't do that. And I think the reason it scared me so much was because in my mind, it would open a floodgate of people coming to me saying, Oh, I'm so sorry. What can I do? And I felt like then that would be a burden on me to have to answer all of these incoming mm-hmm. questions concerns. I would have to make them feel good. And then recently, um, a person I know who's very active on Instagram posted a story about a recent sexual assault uh, that she was uh, a victim of. Mm-hmm. But what was really interesting to me was it wasn't, she didn't just go on Instagram to tell people and be public about it, which by the way, I think It is super important. One reason I think it is super important to be public is for the very reason you mentioned early on, which is to let other people know they're not alone. So I think it was great that she she shared her story, but the way she shared it was really interesting to me because she not only said that that she not only described what had happened to her, but she kind of set boundaries 
around how she was going to deal with it. So she said, you know, I'm going to be offline because I need time to process this. If you want to reach out, that's great, but I can't promise that I'm going to get back to you. And those were the boundaries she set. Mm -hmm. And it was like this huge light bulb went off for me because I suddenly realized it's not a binary decision between totally going public or going private that you have control. You can, or I can set boundaries. It did never even occur to me, which kind of shows you a few boundaries I had. <laughs> and so this idea that, you know, I can be public, I could go online and say things, and then I can set the ground rules for how I'm going to interact with people around them is, I think, just so wonderful. And I think that it was something that felt comfortable to me. Whereas earlier when I saw people just coming online kind of just only sharing what was happening to them, that felt very scary. But the way this woman not, not only shared, but set, it, set boundaries around how she was willing to interact with people and how she was going to take care of herself, I just thought was like so empowering to me. And just what was like a beautiful model for kind of behavior and response that felt very comfortable to me. Yeah, I think that's an amazing example. And I think the boundary setting is also something that is so present for cancer patients in the home as well. Like I have divorced mm. parents and going through cancer with divorced parents, like, sorry, I have to give time to myself. I can be worrying about who gets more time, <laughs> you know, and things like this. So it's like set to setting those types of boundaries also with friends. Like is my, if my cancer is freaking you out, please let me know. So I know not to expect, you know, your support, things like this. I think it's like such a big part of the process. Right. If you were to do it again, which hopefully you don't have to, <laughs> Would you yeah. have the same approach or would you change some things? Yeah. So I kind of did get to do it again when I had the melanoma diagnosis and I think I handled it equally. I mean, I'm trying, I'm trying to learn not to speak with judgment about myself. So let me kind of rephrase. I think it was, it was definitely shocking. And, and I still, I mean, I still struggle with feelings of disbelief. Like that didn't really happen to me, did it? That couldn't, that was just like, I dreamed that it didn't really happen. But I think there was still that imperative to like, let's just get through this and not really slow down. I, I think the one difference is, you know, with skin cancer, with breast cancer, what was great is the chemotherapy worked, obliterated all of the cancer. Then I had a mastectomy mm -hmm. to like remove all the breast tissue. But, you know, cancer is just a cell going wacko, right? So, It could happen anywhere at any time. So there's this constant feeling, like looming feeling of dread and disaster. With skin cancer, a lot of the times you can see it, right? Because it's on your body, which can create, which can be good, but can also create like increasingly par paranoid. Like, what is this? What is this? Is this an okay mark? Is this not? And then, you know, also having to wear sunscreen all the time. So it's like a constant reminder of the threat that you're under. But it also, to kind of reframe it in a more positive way, it also gives me some control. Like, oh, there is something I can do to help protect myself in a way that is not necessarily true with breast cancer. So I, th I don't think I did a good job of like slowing things down, asking questions, that kind of stuff. But I think hopefully it won't happen a third time. But I think 
some of the things we've already talked about in terms of, you know, like educating yourself to the extent that doesn't overwhelm you mm -hmm. or drive you crazy, you know, maybe asking for another opinion, if that makes sense, seeing, you know, what other options are there. I do think that communities can be powerful. For me, I haven't found one that works. Mm -hmm. I mean, I even, I made, this was hilarious. So after I was diagnosed with skin cancer, I was, I was kind of paranoid just to be outside, which was hard for me because I was with the pandemic, I was working out outside. And so I, I joined like three different Facebook groups, a melanoma Facebook groups. And so like the question I posed was, I was just diagnosed and I'm paranoid about going outside. Does anyone have any recommendations? And 99% of the reactions I got were wacko crazy. Just like, okay, I'm slowly stepping out of this room and closing the door. So I promptly got out of all those groups because they just weren't helpful. So I think experimentation in that sense is good. Mm -hmm. Is that like just to see what's out there and, and go with your gut in terms of what feels right. I'm so sad that you had a bad experience with Facebook group. Obviously there's like crazy people out there. <laughs> um, but I actually just last night had a really good positive experience in a Facebook group because I've been going a little bit cray cray um in my head with Google and just not yes. knowing and like brain cancer being so scary and intense and just feeling like I'm gonna die in five years. And I saw a girl that had posted in one of the Facebook groups, you know, I have a, four, a fourth grade glioma. Has anybody like gone through chemo? It's worked and uh, living. <laughs> oh, it pretty much like that brought up a question. And there were like 50 plus comments of people saying like, you know, was diagnosed, did treatment, got it removed and, you know, 15 years without any sign. And it just gave me so much hope. Like, I'm going to cry. I'm probably going to cry now about it. But like, I literally went to my mom and I was like, I'm so emotional. Like I'm starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And I literally say it in this podcast every single episode. And I'm going to say it in this one again. If there's somebody out there with a fourth grade glioma post-diagnosis that is doing well right now, please reach out. But yeah, I guess going into support systems now, you did mention you, you, you spoke to some people around you. And I'm curious, mm -hmm. um, just for, for the fighters listening, um, and the supporters listening, what are some things that those who supported you did that made a difference for you in the everyday? Yeah. So my, part of my whole strategy was not to have a support system, right? <laughs> Because I was like, I'm going to white knuckle my way through this. I don't need any help. Yep. Just need to get through this chemo and everything will be fine. So, uh, and in general, I am not good about asking for help mm -hmm. or accepting help, which is not a good way to deal with cancer <laughs> because you do need help. No matter how strong you think you are, yep. it's tough and you need help. I think one, one area that surprised me was how wonderful the nurses are in the infusion room. So like I, this is hilarious. So my first infusion, I go in there and in my head, I'm going, this is like a bar. It's like a club. <laughs> like you, there are these lounge chairs and you just hang out and I'm looking around and I'm like, mm -hmm. in my case, it was full of people and I'm 52. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of mid age. And, but there were much older people like in their seventies and eighties who did not look happy. Mm. Right. And it was soon apparent to me, like, these are, you're sick. Like you're with sick people. Yeah. This is not a bar. This is like, you're with sick. Yeah. 
Also, what struck me is that people would bring friends with them to keep them company because like my infusions were like six hours long. Yeah. And uh, I was like, why would you bring a friend with you? Like literally. Like, Did you bring work? I brought work. Yes. Because I was like, that's six hours. I can get a shit ton of work done. Because <laughs> my husband, you know, is like, do you want me to come with you? I was like, why would I want you to come with me? I don't. <laughs> six hours of work. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to get worked up. Like literally denial. This is where <laughs> I was. So I, yeah, did not have people with me. But what I found was like, I, the nurses were so amazing. They were just so caring and funny and thoughtful and kind. And really, you kind of realize that you spend more time with your nurses than you do with your doctor. And they're just such a great resource when you have questions or concerns or whatever. And so I didn't realize this, but they were really an important part of my support system that I, when chemotherapy was over, I feel like I went into like, I like really missed the nurses. I wanted to go back and see them because I found that I like, I really looked forward because I was, my chemotherapy was every three weeks mm -hmm. and it just, they really buoyed my spirits. They made me happy. And that when I didn't have that interaction with them, it made me sad. I ended up, I missed it because I didn't actively seek out support. Mm -hmm. Other people who felt uncomfortable with my cancer would send presents. Mm -hmm. And so it was interesting. I got a lot of like canvas bags with inspirational sayings. It's like people gave the gifts that they would want to get. I think one of the things I did do, while I didn't rely on others, work-wise, I did really plan my life around chemotherapy to make sure that the times that I was feeling like crap, I could just lay in bed. So fortunately, my chemotherapy was very predictable in terms of like when the side effects would start and when I would start to feel better. So I I didn't try to powerful through feeling crappy. I did um, take care of myself on the days that I knew I was going to feel miserable. But yeah, I, maybe if I were to do it again, I would create a support network <laughs> because I didn't really do that with any sort of intention. Although there were a group of like four close friends that live in my area. And I did reach out to them and say, like several times throughout my treatment, like, can we have brunch? I just want to do something that feels normal. So that, that was really great that they were like, yes, we'll organize it and you know, blah, blah, blah. And that's super important as you're saying to like, just keep things, try to keep some normal routine and not make your life about cancer. I love that you brought yeah. up the point about the nurses. Nurses just never get enough credit. No, oh <laughs> like, my gosh. We have doctors in this like huge pedestal. And like, of course, they go through so many years of schooling and they have to go through so right. much education and still bow down to like all doctors. But like nurses, right. like they're the ones who put the hours in for, you know, like taking care emotionally as well. Like yes, um, yes. during my time at the hospital, The, doc, the the nurses, most nurses were around my age. So they were my buddies, <laughs> you know, like oh, I would look around and everybody was like, you know, 60 plus. 
And mm-hmm. I just couldn't see anybody who I could relate to. And the, the nurses were like the young ones. And even one of the nurses like was crying the day before I was going into surgery because she could relate. So she had the same name as me. Her name was Rocio. And she was just like, oh, wow. I just cannot imagine being your age and having to go through this. Like, But it was, it was so my support system were the nurses during that time, aside from my family. And also going through radiation. Yes. Like yet again, the technicians, they were my age, you know, like it's, they were young mm. adults going through it and I had banter with them and I was probably the one fun one to come through that wasn't you know the angry grandpa (laughs) going into radiation (laughs) so it is there were some angry yes and I I, oh my god I although my chemo is in pill form and I am so grateful I don't have to go to like those rooms where you get like you know as you were saying infusion the infusion rooms. rooms My, I have to pick up my pills from the infusion rooms. And whenever I go there, I'm just like, that whole day is crap for me. Cause emotionally, it just takes so much of you seeing that whole panorama, um, of older people, sufferings, people, you see people coming out of the oncology visits crying, you know, they've gotten shit news. Mm. You're like, oh no. So it's just yeah, like yeah. the, the amount of things that go into that. Um, I can totally relate to to some of your experiences but I guess also now in your situation you are a supporter um so it's also it's it's a tricky one right so um hopefully some of your experience has helped you you know put into not necessarily materialize but know how to emotionally uh support your husband throughout this time and uh, your children and things like that yeah I think what it's you kind of realize oftentimes when you hear of of something else, of something horrible that someone's going through, mm-hmm. right? Your, your impulse is to reach out and say, oh my God, I'm so sorry. What can I do? Mm-hmm. And it's coming from a place of love, but you realize that in doing that, you're putting the burden on them, right? Because mm-hmm. then they have to come up with something for you to do. Yes. And so, and even as a cancer survivor, like that's still like a gut reaction, even though I know it's not helpful. And so what I've started doing now, not, not, and this is not just for people with cancer, but it could be, you know, someone going through any trauma is when I reach out, the first sentence is you do not have to respond to this email or post or DM or whatever Mm -hmm. it is you know, to take the pressure off Mm -hmm. and to kind of signal that. And then, you know, just to be open and honest with my feelings Mm -hmm. for them and let them know that I'm there for them if, if they need anyone. So no pressure. And then if it's somewhat like if it were close by or someone I was close to is to be able to say, instead of asking them what they need is just to tell them, Mm -hmm. like, I'm going to bring over dinner is there a night that works for you? The focus should be on taking care of them, not on making yourself feel better, or looking like the hero or looking like the good person or getting brownie points because you are nice or all of those things. Last week, we posted an episode about grief and talked about, you know, the mm-hmm. grieving process with one of my friends who is a grief coach outside of the context mm-hmm. of death, just like how supporters can be there mm-hmm. more. 
And he said the sentence, which is that uh, people need support, they don't need comfort. Um, so it really is mm. more so about providing, exactly as you're saying, providing a safe space and options. Would an Uber Eats card help? Would an Uber card to go to the yes. hospital help? Would, you know, like little things like that. Yes. Instead of asking me little things yes, like yes. this, I think can yes. make like such a huge impact. So how does it feel now to start connecting with the emotions? Uh, and which emotions are you starting to feel? Yeah. I mean, it's scary. It's funny. My therapist, I feel like my entire sessions, every session is, and how does that feel? This is the hardest question <laughs> like, out there. <laughs> damn it. <laughs> uh, so, which it's funny. We joke, I joke with her. And because she tries not to phrase it that way, because when she does, then I feel pressure, like I have to feel something, yeah. like I'm on the spot. And I think, to be honest, I'm still learning what it is like to feel something and, and to acknowledge those feelings. Mm-hmm. I mean, recently I learned that anger can be nuanced. Like anger isn't just this explosion. Mm-hmm. So, and which I was like, what? Didn't know that. Because I always thought in terms of binaries and black and white yep. and blah, blah, blah. So um, I think it's just sort of feeling, instead of pushing down feelings, really kind of creating a space to welcome them and let them bubble up and just be kind of curious. Mm -hmm. So I'll notice that there's certain things when I talk about them, I instantly get choked up. Mm -hmm. And so instead of trying to like say, oh, I'm sorry, uh, move on, is to kind of pause and think, huh, why would that cause such an intense emotion? Like earlier when I was talking about my friend Brecca, mm-hmm. I could feel myself kind of choking up. And I'm like, there's something there that I haven't processed yeah. yet, like that I need to mm-hmm. deal with. That's a good it, sort of looking at these, emo- the, realizing too that emotions aren't these abstract things. They live in your body. And so it's like, it's not so much putting words to things, but thinking, huh, when someone said this, my stomach clenched or my shoulders got tight Mm -hmm. or um, I felt, you know, there was like this kind of feeling of anxiousness in my stomach kind of. So just learning to kind of pay attention to my body versus always living in my head, I think um, has been really transformational. And I feel like I'm still kind of early in the journey of dealing with the feelings. I, I don't know that it's, that I have really processed them, but I feel, but I am convinced that that's the healthy thing that I need to do. It definitely is. <laughs> and it will help you in the long term. That's also work that I do so much with myself. And I relate so much to the checking in with your body physically, like emotions. We think they're this abstract thing that lives around us. <laughs> and yeah, some, sometimes yeah. it really is just like, and that's something that actually really helped me get through radiation. In radiation, I get mm-hmm. I had to do 30 sessions, although they were only five minutes. It was like this mask oh. that I had to wear like on my face with like a tiny little hole in my mouth and my nose to oh. breathe. Um, yeah, if you go on my Instagram page, you'll be able to see like I have a video of me with that mask because it literally looks like surreal. And a lot of, you know, the first five sessions were horrible and I couldn't eat until I got radiation done in the day. And um, I started sort of kind of practicing 
meditation and also like body scans throughout my radiation sessions mm. and you know i would feel my shoulders start and i'd be like okay relax them and then start to like really understand and think why am i feeling this way i'm feeling suffocated why is it that you know and start try to drive like my attention to different parts of my body and then the five minutes would go by like so fast it's interesting i did that because when i had to have like the ct scans or whatever mm-hmm. Again, don't remember the name because I just showed up and did the stuff, <laughs> but it's the scan where you kind of go in a tube. Yeah. And so you're like surrounded and it's really, really loud. Oh, the MRIs. Yeah. Yes, the MRIs. So that was just like, is this some kind of torture? Like, is this for real? Yeah. Because you're, it's like claustrophobic and these like super loud screeching sounds. And so, I was like, the only way I'm going to get through this is to meditate mm-hmm. during this. So I did exactly what you described. It's just like, you know, counted my breathing, checked in with my body. And it was like the only way I could get through it. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, imagine having to do that right after brain surgery <laughs> for 30 minutes. I had to do a post brain surgery MRI and I was, 30 minutes. yeah, well, my first one was an hour. My, what? and my check-in ones are an hour long. Um, yeah, because I think it's because, because it's in the brain, they have to do so many different images in so many different directions. Um, but nobody told me the first one was going to be an hour long. So I was by no means prepared for that. Um, That's the, yes, exactly. (laughs) Like you, oh my God, because I think that happened to me too. Mm -hmm. Like the first one I was like, oh, it's going to be like taking a picture. Yeah. 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 Cause, and, and I think things feel longer when you don't have a sense of and, how long yeah. it's going to be, right? Because you think you go into it thinking they're going to be short, mm-hmm. and so any any length then feels long. So I guess that's another tip, right? Is to always ask, yeah, how long is this going to be? Like, yes, I'm grateful that like my my oncology radiation doctor. She was like, this upcoming MRI, this is going to be one of the long ones. It's going to be an hour long, like just letting you know. And I was like, okay, give me all the drugs. <laughs> I was like, anything to make me relax because I know I'm going to start yeah. freaking out, you know, 40 minutes into it. Also, the moment that I don't know if you had to do this, but when they put that liquid, um, the contrast so that they can see. The moment that goes in, you start to heat up and it's like the last like 10 minutes, but it just feels like two hours. Um, so yeah, it is such a crazy experience. And once again, I don't think we speak enough about like all these little tiny little tortures that we go through yes. as part of yes. testing, as part of checkups. Um, do you have to do these checkups yeah. now quite often or not anymore? Uh, so now I'm seeing the my oncologist once a year. Mm-hmm for breast, the breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And for the skin cancer, I, I go in every like three months, um, for a skin checkup. And then they have this cool technology now that can do a full body photo and actually get like below your skin surface. So that set the, like the baseline. So that'll be done once a year to see if there've been any changes. But I think after a year of the like skin checks, then I only go in maybe twice a year. They, you know, it's reduced a little bit, but yeah. So that's sort of where I am now. And, and actually another thing with my breast cancer was, so I got a mastectomy and reconstruction and the 
um, implant that was used in the reconstruction was one of the textured implants that has been connected to cancer. So actually in a couple of weeks I have surgery to get that. I mean, fortunately I haven't had any issues with it, but you know, don't want to have something that's been connected with cancer in my body. So, so in a couple of weeks I have surgery to remove and replace that implant. Long process. Yeah. It, it really is a long process, especially, I mean, I guess it's all for every type of cancer is so different. It's, it, it really is its yeah. own world. Yeah. But from what I hear from the breast cancer community is just, there's never one plan and it always changes. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and I think too, you know, with the breast, because it's so associated with your identity as a woman, mm -hmm. it was sort of interesting. My, my number one concern was that I look good in my clothes because I so I love fashion and that's like my creative outlet and, and my clothes tend to be tailored. So I didn't want like the top of my shirt to look deflated or whatever. And so that like, I wanted implants, not so that I would have these feminine looking breasts, but so that my clothes would look good. There are women that choose to just have a flat chest, you know, like to get the mastectomy and have a flat chest. Um, one choice I made was with the reconstruction um, you can also have like a nipple tattoo or uh, like a 3D tattoo or all this stuff. And I was like, I kind of talked to my husband about it. I was like, I, I don't really want to do that because I don't care. Like, it doesn't matter to me. I'm not, I don't need it for my job. I don't like, you know, it's whatever. It, it wasn't important. So it, it's also kind of causes you to examine your relationship with your body and how your body is connected to your identity and all of these crazy things. Like scars don't care about, for some women, that's like a huge issue. It really opens up your thinking around assumptions that you may not have even realized that you had. Yeah, I think... Your hair, oh my God. right? Losing <laughs> yeah. your hair, yeah. Cancer really does strip you down to like zero and... In terms yeah. of identity, you really have to rethink so much around it, which I think is great uh, to a certain extent. I, I would rather have a different event <laughs> make me do that. <laughs> But yes. um, yeah. I, I do think that, hence why I posted that story. I was like, if there's something I learned about this, it's like, shave your head. You don't know what you're going to look like. It's a terrifying thing to do as a woman. But like, yeah. you, you might feel fucking hot. And if not, it will grow back. Put a hat on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, I loved yeah. it. Well, and that was another thing when my hair started growing back and I decided not to wear a turban, my hair was still quite short, like teeny tiny. And so again, people did not ask me about it. They're like, oh, he's rocking a cool head shaved look. Like, it's like, yeah, that's something in their brain. They're like, yeah, that's something Lee would do. And, uh, and that was kind of interesting. My hair came back curly, whereas before it had been more straight. So it, um, and I kind of, I was like, oh, this is an interesting journey. Let's see where this takes us. I guess now going into the topic of survivorship, you know, I think like people think once you survive it, it's like it disappears from your life. And I know that, of course, it's very present in your life because of your husband, but personally within your, for yourself, um, Does it disappear? Like, do the fears ever go away? Um, how, like, does the mindset think, always linger? I mean, I think, again, going back to this white knuckle yeah. approach is like, okay, let's just get to the finish line and everything. Yeah. Will be good. And you kind of realize, like, 
that's bullshit. <laughs> Anything can happen at any time. Uh, you know, and then getting the skin cancer diagnosis, that was almost like a blip, mm -hmm. you know, because it was like stage zero, yeah. you just cut it out. It's not a blip. They take a huge chunk of your leg yeah. out. Like, you know, so I think you don't want to live in constant fear. Yeah. And I think especially with like the skin cancer diagnosis and, you know, the sun is out there every day. Even I mean, UV rays travel through clouds. So it doesn't matter if it's cloudy. I still have to wear sunscreen. So, but as people, as nurses and doctors tell me, like, you still have to live your yeah. life. You can't live in yeah. fear. And so I think part of it is, you know, saying the, the future is now you, you control your own happiness. You know, you set the rules and you, you don't want to do stupid things. You know, you want to be smart. You want to take care of yourself. You want to, um, eat well, uh, exercise all of those things, but you also just want to live your, you know, you want to live your life. So you like, I put on sunscreen, I wear hats, I bought a parasol because going outside is important to me. I love, I love sculpture gardens. I love hiking, all these things. So I think some of it is, uh, not, like being aware, but not living in fear mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, moving on with your life. I think I, I, I think another of it is, is like, you know, if you can get through cancer, you are a badass person. Yep. Like you are a strong, and, and I don't think I've really sat myself down and said, look at what you mm -hmm. did. Like you did that. Yeah. And you were you working and you had children and you're in a marriage. Like you got to give yourself your credit for yeah. that. Because it is, I did an episode, I don't know if you heard it um, yesterday about strength. And I kind mm. of, I've cracked, I, everybody tells you you're so strong. And like, now that I'm at my weakest, right. it's literally the hardest thing to hear. And I just had to sit down and be like, I'm going to make my own definition of strength. So that when people tell me I'm strong, it feels like I'm strong. Um, and I define strength as um, allowing yourself to have bad days and being vulnerable, but not letting the inner fire to keep fighting go out. Mm -hmm. So, you yeah. know, I think it's like all things combined. Um, you really got to continue yeah. living, as you were saying, and you really can't let these little things stop you from living life. And, and I think, too, you know, what I've come to appreciate is that, like, what happened to me is horrible, but I am not special. Horrible things happen to everybody all the time. And, and I think that's why it's important to talk yeah. about it so that we know, like, I think growing up, I thought bad things are rare, yeah. right? They happen. And sometimes they happen to, they happen to bad people, mm -hmm. right? Bad things happen to bad people. And, um, if you're, you're good or <laughs> virtuous or whatever, yeah. nothing bad will happen. No, that's bullshit, right? Bad things happen all the time. The world is unpredictable. The world is not fair. It's it, 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 If something happens to you, it's not because you deserve it or you're bad or whatever. It just, it's random and it just happened to happen to you. And so I think also, so now like if someone doesn't get back to me in the past, I would have gotten annoyed, right? But now I think I don't know what's happening in their life. And just knowing that like something is going on, everybody has something that they're mm -hmm. dealing with at some level. 
And we just have to be, yeah, we have to be empathetic and take care of each other and have grace for one another. Yeah. I think it's so powerful what you said about, you know, like going through cancer makes you, you know, it's, you've gone through so much and you're so strong on the other end. And I even feel that now, like I have like presentation fear at work, for example, it freaks Ooh. me out to like, and everybody's always told me like, you're so good at like public speaking. And this podcast in itself has been a challenge for me. You know, I wanted to do it to mm -hmm. be able to be better at like speaking. And I was like, if I've had my brain cut open, I can present to a couple random people. I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, I try to put all these things into perspective and then I'm like, okay, you're fine, Ro. So exactly. I think that's It's, a great tip to like, actually for anybody, cancer or no cancer, like think about yes. the most vulnerable you've been physically at some point in your life, how you've overcome it. And then Yeah, it's like I have no qualms about my body yeah. anymore. So many of you have seen it in all oh God, stages, <laughs> like like pre like going through pregnancy, get, having cancer. I'm just like, if you like, I I don't like to have window treatments on my windows. Mm -hmm. Like, if you see me naked, neighbor, I don't yeah. care. Like, it's a like we all have these yeah. things, their yeah. bodies, and it's just I don't like. Yeah, you just there's certain things you you just don't care about mm -hmm. anymore because it just doesn't matter. Yeah. And I, something I've been thinking about quite a bit recently also with this podcast and like finding people to interview is just how much like this community is like 99% female. Like you cannot mm. find males speaking about it from their POV. If not, is there a significant other? It's super interesting. And it, it yeah. almost, I feel like, And I speak to my guy friends and I'm like, it feels like you guys probably have lack of awareness of the different types of like, you know, cancer that, because breast cancer is so loud, you know, and like mm, the, yeah. the, the males, um, specific cancers are barely spoken about to that extent. The male, yeah. ma men once again feel, feel like invincible <laughs> in that regards, you know? It's so interesting that you say that because I can't, like everyone I know who is either dealing with cancer or been through cancer, apart from my mm -hmm. husband, is yeah. female. I can't think of Yeah, anything. because I don't think, well, it's also a cultural thing, right? Like, mm. men are yeah. not supposed to be talking about what they feel and things like that. And, like, we got to get over that. And I would really love yeah, to, yeah. to have some a male guest um, to really speak about, you know, that side of processing things like that in culture. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I guess one last question and then we can close it off. Um, what did that phase of your life, or I guess sadly you're still kind of somewhat involved in it, teach you about yourself? Such a big question. Sort of going back to what we were just talking about, like how strong I am to get through the six rounds of really horrible chemotherapy. It's funny. Part of my whole white knuckling thing is that I wanted to be the best patient, the best cancer patient, because I'm also like a perfectionist and um, people pleaser, right? So, and in fact, my my oncologist is like, you were the best patient. And of course it's like, good. And it's because like, wasn't complaining, you know, I was like, I got this. The, the anti-hormone um, treatment that I'm doing now, basically like sucks all the, what is it? The estrogen out of your body, which didn't realize this you need, right? It like 
you need it, your joints need it. And so what happened to me was that like, I had the mobility of like a 80 year old, like I couldn't squat down. I couldn't. And she's like, yeah, this, this happens. You know, most women stop taking this, um, because they just can't tolerate it. And I was like, I'm going to tolerate it. And one of the things was, I was like, well, I just have to start exercising again because I was very active before cancer. And so I found the more I exercised, the easier it was to move. And like now I don't have any of those side effects. Um, so I think it kind of going back to the topic of what did I learn about myself is, is really, I can do hard things. And I think that's just such a good sent like a, like a mantra to repeat in your head, right? Like I can do hard things, but it also taught me that white knuckling is not a good strategy for moving through trauma that I needed to, I really need to deal with trauma and deal with feeling to grow as a person and not be stuck in the same patterns that I've been stuck in in the past. And I'm very grateful to cancer for that because I don't know that I would be where I am now if I hadn't gone through that experience. That's an interesting quote. <laughs> You're grateful to cancer. <laughs> But I am yeah. so happy that yeah. you can say that now um, because it means that yeah. You're, yeah. you're healthy. Um, well, thank you so much. Is there any last words that you want to share? Well, I want to just thank you so much because this has been, I'm so glad that our paths crossed and that this opportunity opened up to me because it just, I think it's, I consider it a, a, an essential part of my my growth and my learning how to open up and talk about what happened to me and come to terms with the cancer. And, and I really am grateful to you for that. Well, you did a hard thing today and you did it well. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you Lee for joining us for this episode and thank you everybody for tuning in. You can find all of Lee's information in the uh, episode description and please follow us on Instagram at sick of being sick podcast to see what's coming up. If you or anyone you know would like to share their story on the podcast, please reach out to me via the email on the episode description or the show description and um, you're more than welcome to come share your story. If you'd like to write a letter, um, if you don't want to come in, you can also write a letter and I'll read it at the end of the next episode. 